0: Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles or have access to the Scriptures through an iPad or iPhone or smartphone, go ahead and find your way to Luke chapter 18 this morning. We're going to look at verses 18 through 30. We are actually starting into a new series this morning called Uncivilized, and we're going to talk about the faith that Jesus intended for you to live uh, the, the journey that we're going to enter into starts today We'll take a break from it next week because we have our grand opening and then we'll jump back in uh, The following sunday, but we're going to be walking through the book of james Although we're not starting in james today. We'll we'll get to james uh, in the weeks to come as we walk through and and Listen to what James wrote and what he challenged believers 2,000 years ago about their faith and the understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. If you've never read the book of James, you're going to be wonderfully surprised of how, how amazing it can be to be punched in the face by what it means to follow Jesus. James is very much up front. This is what it means, kind of uh, no frills, just the straight truth. And I think it's important because I know for me personally, I'll go back to the, James, the book of James periodically to remind myself, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does he really call us to in this life? And so we're going to start this series because I, I, I knew this was true and I see it happen in my life and I know it's true in other people's lives, but about four weeks ago, I was having lunch with a, with a good friend and we were just talking about life and this is what he said to me. When he said this to me, I, I thought this, this is so true of not just him, but it's true of all of us. And especially, it's true of our city, I think, so many times. But he, he had been a Christian for, he's been a Christian for a number of years. And he said, listen, he said, he goes, I, I, I have a good family. You know, my business is really successful. I go to a really good church. He doesn't go to our church, but he goes, I go to a really good church. And he said, you know, he's just saying. he goes, my life is good. He goes, I'm a pretty good person, you know, and, and just kind of going through And then he paused. And he looked at me and he said, but I'm completely empty inside. He said, I, I, I don't get it. He goes, I, I don't understand that this, this thing. I, I'm, I'm supposed to be uh, following Jesus and, and there's supposed to be something more that's there. But, but, but I have everything, but I have nothing. And so we had this dialogue. And, and, I, and as I was listening to him, I thought, how many times I know have I felt that in my own life, but how many times I've had that conversation with other people where we've kind of got this thing called Christianity down. We kind of know what it's supposed to be like, and so we kind of start living out what we think our faith is supposed to look like. But deep down inside, if we're honest with ourselves, we're empty inside. There's really no life there. We're just kind of going through the motions and doing the Christian thing. And if we were really honest, we would say, really? Is that it? Is that all that there is? Because that's what he was saying. He says, this is it? This is all that there is to this thing called Christianity? This morning, I want to take some time to start in Luke 18, because in a moment, we'll find a man in that passage who... Most likely, if he were alive today, would live right smack in the middle of Simi Valley. I've mentioned this before, but it, it always comes back to me, especially we were walking through this series. There's a part in Rocky III. If you've seen any of the Rocky movies, all 25 of them or whatever it is, you know in Rocky III, you know Rocky's kind of gotten to the place now. Or after Rocky One, he, you know, he fights Apollo and it's a draw, so Apollo retains the title, and then Rocky Two. The rematch, Rocky beats Apollo Creed and he becomes the champion. And then the beginning of Rocky III, he's winning all these title defenses and he's making all this money and they move into a big house and everything's going great. And then this guy, Clubber Lang, comes along and challenges him to fight. And so he's wanting to fight him and his trainer, Mickey, saying, no, you don't want to fight this guy. And it kind of culminates in this, this debate or this intense argument they're having. And, and Mickey's saying, listen, you, you can't fight this guy. And he said, why? He goes, because he'll kill you. He said, he'll destroy you. And so you could tell Rocky's kind of stunned. And so then he pulls him aside and they sit down in this kind of this calm moment. And he says to Rocky, he says, listen. He said, the worst thing that could ever happen to a fighter happened to you. He said, somewhere along the line here, you became civilized. And you lost the edge of what it meant to be a good fighter. And I, I've, I thought that every time I've watched that part or, or seen that part or thought about that, I thought, that's the conversation I think sometimes that Jesus comes alongside and says to us, "The worst thing that could happen to a Christian happened to you. You became civilized in your faith, and you lost what it means to truly follow Me." And so, in this series, and as we start in this morning, I want you to to ask yourself some questions about your own life, and and the true and 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 give honest answers and honest reflection to think that that. Maybe some of the questions is, what if, what if this life and this faith that I have is not necessarily the life and faith that Jesus wants for me? What if there actually is something missing to this thing called Christianity that I'm not understanding, that I'm missing? Maybe there's something more that God wants me to know, and really think honestly about that this morning, because the man that we're going to encounter in this passage today, I want to start in Luke, and we'll end up in James in the weeks to come, because I think this man is the kind of man that James wrote his book for, that the Holy Spirit inspired James to write to, to get his attention. And as I read through this and we'll walk through this journey with Jesus, this man has, I think you and I are going to see ourselves in him. A lot of what we do in our city, a lot of what we live out in our lifestyle is exactly what this man, what this man would have lived out in our city. If Jesus were to walk into our church today, if he were to come into Simi Valley, what would he see? Who would he see? I'm pretty confident to say, you know, he'd see, he'd see the rich young ruler, the man that we're going to see in this passage today, living the life that he lived 2000 years ago living that today in our own city. So starting in verse 18, Luke 18, it says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who can can be saved then? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, before we look at some things about civilized faith compared to what uncivilized faith looks like, I know, as we read through a passage like this, so many times what we do our default is, because we know from Matthew's recording of this story, he actually says, "Rich." He doesn't just say "a ruler," that we know that this, this individual had a certain, certain kind of place in society, and part of that was his wealth till so he was rich. And many times when we read this story, we think, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. By the fact that you live in Simi Valley, by the fact that you live in the United States of America, you and I are filthy rich. Only about 5% of the world's population lives at the economic level that we live at. The majority of the world doesn't experience the economic wealth that we have. That means even what we would consider the poorest of poor in our own country compared to the rest of the world is wealthy. That means when, when this story was recorded, In scripture, and we read it 2,000 years ago, it applies to every single one of us in this room. We're the rich young ruler. We're the rich man. It doesn't matter how much or how little we have in our bank account. Because compared to the world, we are wealthy. So Jesus writes this to us, or he, he, he shares this story with us. Three things I want to start off with about this man that relate to, and maybe you find yourself in this, is what a civilized faith looks like. There's three things that are true of him that I think are true of us. Sometimes a civilized faith, first of all, acquires status. So just it starts off, in Luke writes, he says, a certain ruler asked him, a certain ruler. So we know from this, and what I mentioned from Matthew's gospel, that this man had some kind of authority. He was looked up to, and we know from Matthew's gospel that he was young and he was wealthy. So he had this thing that all of us want. He had this thing called status. In his young life, he had reached a certain place in his life where he was acknowledged as somebody who was significant in whatever it is. We don't know if he had a successful business and got really wealthy or if he gained a large inheritance, but we know that he had money, he had some kind of status and rulership in society. So people looked at him. He had established himself and had a certain status among people. And I think that's important in correlation for you and I today because all of us, Strive to reach a certain status in our life and in our faith I'm convinced that all of us have a script that gets embedded into our brains That even though we don't know the twists and turns in every detail of our life We have this script that we believe is what our life is supposed to look like lived out for 60 70 80 90 100 years and we think of when we finally reach this certain place, when we finally make this much money, when I finally have this job, or I finally live in this neighborhood, or I drive this car, then what do I have? I've, I have status. I've arrived. This man had arrived in his own mind, and I think sometimes in our faith, we've arrived. I've gotten to a certain place that, that I'm now kind of mature or... I'm not perfect. None of, us, none of us pretends to be perfect. But I've kind of gotten to the place now where I'm there. And we all know when you finally get there, you realize you're not really there at all because you still. Are, you realize there's so much more to go. But, but there's that side of it. Our, we become civilized once again in our faith. We kind of got our brains around, our understanding around this thing called Christianity. We kind of got it down. And then that's when we kick into going through the motions of our faith. Being a good person, going to a good church, having a good job, but being empty without any passion in our lives. Second thing that's true about a civilized faith is that this is what's even scarier. A civilized faith actually acknowledges Jesus. So going on, verse 18 and 19, it says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So this man, in his understanding of religion and faith, understands enough about who Jesus is to call him good, acknowledging something of his divinity. He knows that Jesus has an authority that nobody else has. That's why he's having this conversation with him. He's having a point of acknowledgement of who Jesus is in this moment, yet he's completely missed the boat on what it really means to understand who God is. Because he's civilized in his understanding. And I, I think it's true in our culture, and I've watched this probably over the, like the last, probably long before me, at least over the last 15, 20 years, is that uh, Jesus, Jesus' popularity is very high in our culture. People are very favorable towards Jesus. If you, if you were to take a poll in our culture and you'd say, okay, what is the approval rating of the church compared to the approval rating of Jesus? The approval rating of the church is really low, and the approval rating of Jesus is really high. Now I think there's a number of reasons for that but I think obviously one of them is people know the nature of Jesus and the way he approached sinners and the way that he was compassionate but I also think one of the reasons that Jesus' popularity is so high in our culture is because people don't know who Jesus is and I think I've discovered in my life the closer I get to Jesus in a good way the more scary he becomes to me when I'm at a distance Jesus can be anything I want him to be he can just be the compassionate, loving you know, God and man who came to care for sinners, which he is, but he's never the God who asks anything of my life. He's never the God who challenges any areas of my life. He's not the God that, that call, calls me to die to myself, to follow him. As long as I stay at a distance, he looks really appealing. And this man got close enough to Jesus, and I think you, as you'll see in this conversation, he went from, wow, you are good, to, oh no, I'm really sad because what you just said to me. Anybody been on the ride Goliath at Magic Mountain? Goliath kind of is that kind of ride to me. I, I love because I loved Goliath kind of like jets up above much, most everything else in the park. And when I'm driving down the five, I like to look over and I always look at Goliath to see, you know, is there a car going up to the top of that hill? And they're about to go over, you know, almost to the point it's like I'm rubbernecking. It's like, am I going to get an accident? Because it looks really cool. But then if you're like me, you know, you get in line to a ride and then you realize you get a little bit close and you realize, wow, that 255 feet. That's a lot higher standing at the foot of it than it is from the freeway, right? And then you're watching cars go up and then go down and you're hearing people scream as they go down and they come back in and either they're terrified or they're exhilarated and then you get closer and I know for me when I get on the ride it's like the heart rate starts to go up a little bit, you know. My, my palms start getting a little sweaty and it's kind of like that nervous excitement. And then if you've been on Goliath, you know, you're kind of chugging up the big hill and you pass Colossus, which as a kid used to scare you to death. And now it looks like a little kiddie ride, right? And you're still going up. And then finally at the peak, you kind of peak that top of that hill and it's like, why am I on this ride, right? And then you're exhilarated. You go down and it's, it's, it's incredible. I think that Jesus looks just like that to most of us. He's really, he looks really appealing, and I can acknowledge that he's God, and, and I can do all those things, but, but then the closer you get to him, the more you realize, oh, wait a second. He's scary. He's unpredictable. He's almost dangerous because what he sees in me and what he calls me to is more than I understand and more than maybe I want to give away. So this man has this encounter with Jesus. So he's gotten a certain status. He feels like he's arrived he acknowledges that Jesus good, is good, so somehow that he, is, he has some divinity to him. And then there's a third thing that's true of us, and that is a civilized faith, just like this man, accepts morality. goes on verse 20 and 21. As Jesus is saying, he says to him, You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And then he says, All these I have kept since I was a boy. Now here's my, my theory, okay? I think that this man came to question Jesus partly because he wanted an answer, but partly because I think he thought he knew the answer. And he thought, if I, in public, because I have status, I ask Jesus this question, and he gives me the answer I'm expecting you to give, which I believe is the first part here. He was expecting Jesus to say, have you kept all the laws since you were a boy? And as Jesus is saying, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, honor your parents, he's all, check, check check. I got it. I got it. That's why he says, in fact, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus was simply reciting all the laws that every young Jewish boy would have grown up obeying. And he's just, and so the guy's thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm going to get access to eternal life, and I'm going to look really good doing it. Because Jesus is going to say, yeah, you did all these things. That means that we wish, you know, I'm sure the guy, too, in the story wishes that the story ended here, but we're going to move on in a minute. The story doesn't end here. But in his own mind, he's thinking, yeah, I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. I don't, I do, I'm not perfect, but I don't do those bad things that other people do. Therefore, somehow I'm justified before God. I think sometimes we get a little bit off course when we think that morality is the goal of Christianity. Morality is the byproduct of Christianity. It's not the goal. Morality was the goal of the law. And how well did that work out? didn't work out very well. Why? Because none of us could be perfect. And even the religious leaders who were considered the most moral were the ones that Jesus went after the most because morality can't save you. Morality is just the byproduct of somebody who follows Jesus. And we, when we make morality the end all for Christianity, then we miss the boat completely. We can be really good people who end up missing out on eternal life with Jesus. We can be really religious people. I think one of the the challenges that we have is that none of us in this room would admit that we're perfect. We wouldn't say, oh, I don't have any problems. I never sinned. None of us would say that. But we grade ourselves morally different than God does. We grade on the curve, which means I can always find somebody else who's just a little bit more immoral than I am. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like them. Remember the encounter that Jesus witnessed with a Pharisee and a tax collector? And the tax collector's pouring his heart out before God in repentance for his broken life. And what does the Pharisee pray? Well, at least I'm not like him. I'm moral. He's immoral. If you and I think about our lives that way, sometimes we fall into line with that. And the danger in that is that we find ourselves outside the church valuing people who are moral and yet just as far from Jesus than people who are immoral. See that. See if we continue to align ourselves like, well, oh, they're a good person. Why? Because they don't do this and they don't do this and do that. But they're so far from Jesus, they're just as religious as the Pharisees, and they end up missing the boat. But when we see someone who's outward about their brokenness and maybe rebellious about their sin, we distance ourselves from them. Those are the very people that Jesus hung out with, not the moral people. And so you and I can actually reach a certain place of accomplishment in our faith and our life. We can actually acknowledge that Jesus is God. And we can live a basically good moral life and never experience the faith that God intended us to live. That's scary. That's scary that we could, we could go that far, we could do those things and then be left with nothing, with emptiness inside because we haven't experienced really what God has for us. So as I mentioned, we wish that the story ended there, but it doesn't. Look at verse 22. Jesus goes on. Verse 22 and 23, it says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell so everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, as Jesus is saying, listen, that's great that you're moral, and that's great that you, you, you kept up the law since you were a boy, but there's still one more thing you have to be obedient to, one more hoop you have to jump through, and then you'll get eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's getting at something that's in this man's heart. He was realizing that that man's wealth and what it represented in his life was more valuable than giving all to follow Jesus. That's why he went away sad. And before we talk about the specifics of an uncivilized life, I want to talk about just for a moment because I think what's so important about this man and us and how much we we are in connection with each other is what his money afforded him is the same thing it affords us today. Again, all of us are in this category. When we're saying rich today, you are rich. That's really good news, right? Like, wow, well, I go to church and I'm rich. I don't feel rich during the week, but I am today. But maybe you don't want to be rich when we're looking at this passage. But what does wealth do for us? What does it allow in our life that, apart from it, maybe we don't have, or at least we would perceive that we don't have? Three things that I think we get caught up in. In fact, it's what motivates a civil faith. It's the motivation behind kind of keeping a nice, clean controlled, safe kind of faith. The first thing that money affords us in a civilized faith is motivated by is this thing called comfort. I want to be comfortable. See, when, when you make a certain level of money in our world, with that comes the ability to buy things that help to maintain a certain comfortable living that you want. Living in a house that you desire to live in, or living at a certain economic level that gives you access to things that you enjoy. And there's a certain kind of comfort that comes with that. And what happens when we buy into that and we live in that is we become entitled to that and think that we deserve it. I saw a news report this morning on the American dream. And is the American dream still alive? And now that we've gone through all that we've gone through, You know, can anybody really attain that? And, you know, small towns and people moving out of them and then, you know, businesses closing down and the world's coming to an end. It's like, wait a second. Look at the rest of the world. They don't have access. You know, the American dream for us is so far above what the world would even consider reality. But it's what we come to expect. It's that certain level of comfort that money affords us. Living in a city where there are enough resources for things. And we have a certain expectation. So when I go out and, and walk and exercise during the week, and walk in some different neighborhoods, just just close to where we live is a very nice part of Simi Valley. Really beautiful area to walk in. Really nice homes. Some of them are well worth over a million dollars, and just a pleasant place to walk. And so I, I, as I walked through there about three or four weeks ago, I noticed that in this this pristine neighborhood where. I mean, every morning when I go out to walk and exercise, every single morning, landscapers are there, like, meticulously trimming everything. You know, it's, it's amazing. And the grass in the middle of the drought is perfectly green. I don't know how that works. My grass is brown. This is green grass. And everything's just perfect. And as I was walking through a few weeks ago, uh, I realized that a number of the sidewalks and then the ramps that go down onto the streets had been torn up. Like, Someone came in, a company came in, like jackhammered out this perfectly good concrete. I'm like, what? I mean, I've been walking through there for a while. I didn't notice any problems. No trees had kind of pushed any of the sidewalk up or anything like that. And so as I was walking through the the neighborhood one day, I I stopped one of the workers and I said, okay, I got to know. I said, what are you guys doing? And he turns and looks at me with this smirk on his face because he knows why I'm asking. He goes, yeah, he goes, this is the way it works. He goes, the builder gave a 10-year warranty to the city and said, after 10 years, now it goes to the city to maintain it. But up to 10 years, there's a warranty that we'll come and fix whatever there is. So this guy said the city came through and looked for the microscopic cracks in the concrete, and whatever they found said all that has to be replaced. I don't know the estimate, but I'm telling you it's probably close to a million dollars worth of concrete. In this beautiful—now, if you live there, I'm not bagging on you at all. I'm just saying, when I walk around Simi Valley, there's a few other places that might need a little extra TLC where there is trees uprooting uh, the sidewalk, and there are cracks that need to be taken. But there's—again, it's it's that level that we reach. Even our own city and our city government, like, well, no, we can't have hairline cracks in our sidewalks. Oh, God forbid. (laughs) Go to Haiti. Greg will tell you. There are no sidewalks most of the time, right? But it's that level that we reach. It's like, oh, yeah, we have to have that. That's what happens, and that happens, and it creeps into our life, and it creeps into our faith, that I want to be comfortable. I want life to be easy. Second thing that's true about the motivation behind a civilized faith is that it's motivated by consistency. Money affords us a life with very little change. Now, turmoil happens and change happens in life, but you'll notice across the globe, the more money somebody has, Usually the less their life will have to be changed or uprooted You find somebody living in abject poverty. The only constant in their life is change Am I going to get a meal? Today am I going to have a roof over my head tonight? Where am I going to stay? Do I have any family members? That's the world, but when you have a little bit of money life is a little bit more predictable a little bit more routine a little bit more consistent and the danger in that Is that we lose sight of our need for god because life's so predictable It's so consistent. It doesn't mean that bad things never happen to us. It just means that our highs aren't as high and our lows certainly aren't as low as the rest of the world. So we become more kind of in the middle. And because of that, we want consistency. And it's so easy for us to fall asleep. It's so easy to fall asleep on our faith. It's so easy to fall asleep on Jesus. And I know probably about 10 or 12 years ago, going through my own crisis of faith, or even while I was pastoring a church, forced me to answer a really tough question. I grew up in the church. My parents were in ministry. I have great parents and a great upbringing. But somewhere along the line, I fell asleep on Jesus and didn't even realize that my definition of who Jesus was to me, not who Je- Jesus is the same yesterday tonight, he doesn't change, but my understanding of him better changed because he's God. And I can't contain all of who he is in one sitting. I have to have a lifetime of revelation of who he is to me. And I had reached a point in my life where I had him in a nice, neat, safe, contained box. And I could use him to pastor the church that I was pastoring. And I could do what I wanted to do as long as he stayed in this little box until I got to a crisis moment and realized I had limited who he was in my life. And the reason I share that is because each one of us has to answer a question. Is Jesus the same to you now as he was a year ago? Is he the same to you now as he was five years ago, ten years ago? If you say yes, there's a problem with your faith. Because you're not letting Jesus expand who he is to you. He's the God of the universe. There should be this dynamic understanding that he reveals more and more of who he is. And that means when he reveals more, that means that change happens in my life. He overwhelms me. He, he changes me. In fact, maybe the better word is that he ruins me. He rocks my world. He doesn't allow me to settle for comfort. He doesn't allow me to live the same boring, consistent, routine life that I just kind of get lulled into, especially in Simi Valley. We know the way our city works, right? Everybody lives here because no one wants to live in L.A., Right? Isn't that the way it works? That's why in the last 30 years, Simi Valley has grown quite a bit because I used to live in the valley and the, la- the valley's scary. Don't go over there, right? It's too crowded. In fact, we went with our insurance agent this week. He's like, oh, it's a good thing you don't live in Northridge. Man, if you lived in Northridge, it would be like the end of the world because your insurance rates would be three times as high. You don't want to live in Northridge. Like, God forbid, don't live in Northridge. Sorry if you live in Northridge, okay? I, I feel bad for you because your insurance rates are three times higher. But it's like this this comfort. I, wa- I don't want to be bothered. I want to be left alone. I don't want to live where there's crowds and crime. So I move to what? The safest city in America. <laughs> it's a lie, by the way. It's not true. But that's what sells our city, and we buy into it with our faith, fall asleep on what Jesus wants to do and who he is in our life. Then there's a third, third thing that's true before we will look at the uncivilized side of things. A civilized faith is also motivated by control money allows you and i to believe we're in control this this young ruler as he was talking to jesus he was he was in his own mind i think he thought he could control jesus that he could actually get the answer out of jesus that he wanted to but jesus was completely unpredictable to him He went a different direction than he was hoping he would go. What money does is it allows us to think that for at least a moment, I somehow have control over my life because now I can afford certain things that somehow give me really what's an illusion of control. And it's true. The the more money somebody has, the more they think that they know about life. Tim Keller, who's a great pastor in New York City, he said it this way. He said, he said, what happens when people get wealth, And maybe it's because they're really good at their job, and they're an expert in one field, and that allows them economic wealth. He said, what happens is that somehow they think that they're an expert in all areas of life, because pride enters in, and they think they're in control. This is so true. Think about, think about we live pretty close to this place called Hollywood, And in Hollywood, and in the music industry, and the TV industry, and the movie industry, you hear all all that. What happens when somebody becomes really wealthy and really popular? They're really good at music, they're really good at acting, but suddenly they want to tell you how to live your life. They become an expert on everything. No, you're good at acting, and you're good at playing the guitar, but you're not good at everything else. Why? Because they have this perception, I'm in control of everything. Just watch, watch the VMAs. Don't watch the VMAs, which is the music video Awards. Kanye West for president, right? In 2020. He knows everything. Sorry if you're a Conway, yeah, Conway, yeah, Kanye West fan. Really? What is that in him that makes him do that? I have money, so I have control, so I know everything. Now, none of us are like Kanye West, right? None of us have pride, ego, and wealth. All of us do. What is that? That's that perception that I'm in control. And we're not. So if you look at that, our our faith becomes this thing that provides comfort for us. It's consistency, so it's the same. And somehow I have this understanding that I'm in control. The only person who's ultimately in control is God. We're not. We're not in control. In fact, listen to what James, this is, here's our one quote from James today as a teaser for the next few months. James 4, verse 13 and 14, he says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then poof, vanishes. I haven't found per- one person yet that that's their life verse. You know, they put it up on the mirror in the morning, <laughs> that they memorize that. We don't like that. What is James saying? He's saying, you have this illusion of being in control, but you're not in control at all. You make plans. You live out what that script that you have in your mind about how successful you're going to be and what economic level you have to reach. But James is saying, listen, in a moment, your life's gone. The script is gone. It's over. Because ultimately, you're not in control. So now, aren't you glad you came to church today? <clears throat> There's a faith that's greater than the faith that we've embraced that God wants us to live out. There's an uncivilized faith. And so as we go on in the story, Jesus begins to explain what that looks like. And look at verse 24 to verse 27, because the first thing that Jesus tells us about what uncivilized faith is is that it is supernatural. It's God's power. Because Jesus says, says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for anyone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Yikes, that's the scary verse. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is using an extreme example. He is equating a rich person entering the kingdom of God with Somehow, a camel going through the tiniest eye of a needle. That's not some historic reference to some gate somewhere in Jerusalem that people have come up with. So Jesus really wasn't being extreme. No, he was being absolutely extreme. That's why he's saying, that's impossible. That's just as you think it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But what's impossible with man is possible with God, which means God can even take a civilized uh, person with status and wealth and significance and consistency and comfort and control and rock them in such a way he can save their soul. That means there's hope for Simi Valley. That means there's hope for us. And we'll talk about it because James talks about those who are poor should take pride in their high position. Those who are rich should be really realistically understanding that they are in a low position. Why? Because their money has kept them at a distance from God where somebody's poverty has put them in direct connection to God. There's something about riches and connecting with God that we we tend to miss. We think the more we have, the more God likes us. Sometimes the more we have, the more distant we get from him. But this supernatural thing, that means that my salvation, my transformation is by the power of God. It's not my morality. It's not my wealth. It's not everything that I do to try to make it work. It's God's power in me. God can do the impossible. I can't do it. It's impossible for me to save myself. It's impossible for me to to be good enough, but God can transform me. this is what's so amazing about how, how God works, is that when somebody really discovers who Jesus is, when they finally surrender their life to him, there is this amazing transformation that happens in them. It's like Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and realized who he was, nowhere in the story of Zacchaeus does Jesus say, okay, Zacchaeus, you have to do these things. He goes over and has, has a meal with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus' response is what? I repent for, for robbing people, and I will repay everything I've ripped people off of. And he goes t- double above the law, which would require paying back twice as much, and says, I will pay back four times as much. There was a direct correlation to Zacchaeus embracing Jesus and how it affected his money, because it wasn't his money anymore. There's a modern day Zacchaeus. If, you, know, you don't have to admit this, but if any of you watch Two and a Half Men, a character named Jake, Angus T. Jones, was on that show from when he was a little kid. And in the last two years, I think I, I was reading through his story and listening to some of his interviews, I think he was raised with some Christian kind of background, walked away from Jesus, and then a couple of years ago, he discovered who Jesus was. And because of that, at the height of that show, highest rated sitcom on TV, he was making $300,000 an episode as a teenager. That's between 3 and $4 million a year. He walked away. The reason he walked away is he said, I feel like a hypocrite. This is not consistent with who God says that I am. And I can't continue to portray that on screen. And so he walked away. Somewhat controversial because he made some parting shots to the to the producers about the, the content of the program. In fact, he's actually come out and said, please don't watch that show. Because if you have watched that show, you know it's like the most immoral show on TV and it, and it glorifies all of that. And so for him, it was like, I can't do that anymore because what God has done inside of me. And because of that, he walked away from wealth I was watching some different uh, kind of commentary on him, some, all these like, Hollywood reporters from like Inside Edition and Extra, and all of them are saying the same thing. They're like, nobody does this. Nobody walks away from the height of their career as a teenager making that much money just because some religious thing happened to them. Nobody does that except for Angus. He did that. Why? Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. That God can take a young teenage boy who's making millions of dollars and transform him so much that he could walk away from his wealth and be happy. God can do that. Now you're thinking, "Wow, well, after this, do I have to go sell my house and sell my car? And If God tells you to, sure. But if you've embraced a life of comfort and consistency and control because you are rich compared to the rest of the world, then God is going to rock your world. God is going to reach in and begin to shake you a little bit and say, hey, there's a different thing. There's a different way of life that I want you to live. Second thing about an uncivilized faith is that it is surrendered. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Peter's saying a pretty powerful statement. They have, P- Peter's a part of the 12, and these, these guys had left. Now there, there's tension in this, obviously, of do I go back? But he had left everything. You remember Peter's first encounter with Jesus on the seashore, Peter's a professional fisherman. He's good at what he does, except he has a really bad night. He catches nothing. And when he encounters Jesus the next morning, Jesus says to him, go out and put your nets on the other side. Go out to the deep. And, and, and you can almost hear in Peter's words a little bit of almost sarcasm, like, well, since you said so, I'll go do it. There's probably some curiosity in him, and at the same time, like, I'm a professional fisherman. I know what I'm doing. You're a carpenter's son. Let's call it quits, right? But he goes out and he does it anyway. What happens? The best catch Peter's ever had. Can't even bring it in all on his own. Has to get help. Gets it to the seashore. And what does Peter do? Does he say, wow, look at how much money there is in these fish. I've never caught this much. much. If Jesus just kind of show up every day, I'll make tons of money. He doesn't say that. He looks at the fish and he looks at Jesus and he's convicted to the heart because he realizes who Jesus is. And then he walks away from the biggest catch of his entire life. He walks away from all of that. Why? Because what Jesus had to offer was more valuable than the greatest catch he ever had. That's Peter. He fully surrendered everything. He was all in. Now we know Peter, he was always putting his foot in his mouth. But one thing that Peter always did was Peter was always all in. He wasn't going back. He was all in. There's another famous story you're probably familiar with, and there's a phrase that people use that references it back in 1519. Hernan Cortez made landfall in Mexico with five to six hundred men. For six hundred years, no one had ever conquered Mexico. He shows up with five or six hundred men, and he has a strategy. He says, we're going to take the whole country of Mexico. And his strategy is to burn the ships they came on. So they did. They lit them up. All the ships that they came over with, the ones that were their lifeline back home, were burned to ashes. And he said to his men, we're all in. There is no going back. There is no lifeline out of here. We were only moving forward, and they were victorious. Now, I don't know, I can imagine what the kind of dialogue was amongst the men. Like, who is this idiot that is leading us? Why is he doing this? He made a decision for them that left no option but, then, but to move forward. In our life, so many times, what do we do with Jesus? Jesus. We're not all in sometimes. You know what we do? We like Jesus to come and be an addition to our life. Let me just add him over the top of my job and my house and my car and my family and my comfortable life and just come and bless me. Bless me with good stuff. Make sure I'm healthy. I like to live till I'm 90. That would be great. You know, make sure that my, my kids don't rebel too bad. Make sure that I don't go through unemployment. Make sure that I can make my payment. Make sure that I don't get cancer. And that becomes the sum total of our faith. Let me just add him on so I have a really nice life. That's not what it's about. What Jesus is saying is Jesus has called us to come and die to ourselves and follow him. He's burning the ships. And you and I are like, no, can you build a bigger ship that's a little nicer than the ones that you burn? No. We're all in. Some of us still have a lifeline to the past, to comfort, to security. Because we think that somehow... Somehow, it's okay, it's not okay. In fact, it's interesting, if you read through Peter's journey, what does he do when, he, when Jesus has died, and, and now he's, Jesus has risen, but Peter's not sure, because Peter, remember Peter denied Jesus three times, he's not sure how the relationship's going, so what did Peter do? He went back to the ship that was burnt. He went back to fishing. And then Jesus shows up in the middle of Peter, fishing again, and says, "Nah, uh I'm making you a fisher man, don't do that. And I think if you and I realize that God is wanting to seal off the li- lifelines to our past because he has something more exciting for the future. Because if we keep the lifeline open to the past, you know what we'll find in our hearts? Emptiness, a lack of passion, and no life. Then there's a final thing. And then we're going to have communion together And just as we conclude. Uncivilized faith is, and this seems almost counterintuitive, what we've been talking about, is actually secure. So going on to verse 29 and verse 30, it says, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying? If you sell out and you burn the ships in this life, if you give up everything to follow me, you will gain even more in eternity. You will actually gain More. If you've been in church, you've heard that concept, but boy, is it hard to buy into that because all we see is what's in front of us, and we think, no, I I want that now. That's why Jesus, in the the Sermon on the Mount, so many times he says, if you want money, if you want status, if you want the pat on the back, you'll get that right there, but then you just got the fullness of your reward. You've just forfeited what you're going to get in eternity, which is so much more. And that means if we sell out and we live an uncivilized faith, which means we have to give up with some comforts of life, that we have to sacrifice ourselves in areas of our life, that we have to do things that maybe are not necessarily easy. In eternity, we will look back with great satisfaction and think, I'm so glad that I surrendered that. Or maybe in eternity, we look back and think, oh, I could have experienced so much more in heaven if I would have given up that just for that season of my life and that little Vanishing vapor that I had called life—that I could now experience this in fullness. Paul said it this way: in Philippians one twenty-one says, "For me to live is Christ; to die is gain. To live is Christ; to die is gain." What is Paul saying? To live is about living for Jesus. It's about Him. But if I die in the process of following Jesus, it gets even better. It gets even better. Now, if you read through Paul's journey, you read through Paul's journey in the, in the book of Acts, Paul went through some hard times. You read through First and Second Corinthians, Paul went through some hard times. Paul suffered greatly and eventually su- surrendered his life, his physical life for Jesus. And yet, there's, here's a guy throughout his lifetime could write a book or a letter to the church at Philippi talking about this strange concept called joy. How does he do that? He surrendered everything and then he got more in return. Maybe we don't have joy because we haven't surrendered everything else, and everything else we're hanging on to is making us miserable. We haven't experienced the joy that God has for us. What does this mean? That means when you follow Jesus, when you live an uncivilized faith, and you're all in, you can't lose. You can't. You can only win. You can't lose. But so many times we think we can. Oh, if I have to give this up, I'm going to lose. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to—all those things. But if you realize we can't lose— Jesus already won. The cross proved that. The greatest enemy of our soul is sin and death. And those were both destroyed. On the cross, sin was paid for. And because of Jesus' perfection, death couldn't hold him. So he overcame death. The two greatest enemies of us are destroyed. That means I can't lose. That means if I die, it's even better. What if we really believe that? Would it change the way we live our life? It would. If you know you can't lose, you play the game differently. If you know you can be all in, and even if you fail, and even if you try and things don't work out, and even if you're pushing really hard and there's some pain involved, you know in the end you win, you can push through that pain. You can make it to the end. Let me close with this. There's a kid named Jason in my neighborhood growing up. The first kind of remembrances of life for me are in corona california my parents came back from jamaica on the mission field we, we were in in corona for five years and so i think my first memory was like when i was three or four years old in the front yard of that house and lived there until i was seven and jason was one of my friends jason was three or four years older than me and lived down the street about four or five houses down jason wasn't much of an athlete but jason to this day is probably one of the best storytellers i've ever met in my entire life And when he would come down and we would play, with all of my other friends, we would like ride big wheels and we'd play kickball and we'd play basketball. Jason wasn't that kind of kid, but Jason could tell stories. And I remember to this day, he he would come and we'd go in my backyard and I'd be sitting on the swing and I'd say, Jason, tell me a story. Just tell me another story. And Jason would always tell the same story over and over again. It's the one I wanted him to tell. And it had kind of different nuances, and some of the things in the middle changed a little bit, but the outcome of the story was always the same. And the story was this. He told the story about a baseball game, and in the baseball game, the two teams were the devil and Jesus. And in the story, he would go on to explain, he would go through all nine innings, almost every pitch. He would kind of explain what was happening. He would talk about, you know, kind of in the middle innings when the devil got up on Jesus a few runs and he's up on the mountain and he's throwing fastballs at Jesus and Jesus is swinging and missing and all this is going on and, 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 he, and, and he's sneering at Jesus and he's being sarcastic and disrespectful and I would get angry for Jesus and then he, in the next inning, Jesus would come up and he'd hit a, a grand slam and he'd catch up and all through this whole story, but I always knew the way the story would end. It was always the bottom of the ninth and Jesus was down and somehow he would miraculously pull out the wind every single time. And the reason I wanted Jason to tell the story is because I knew how it ended. But it still was intriguing. But I knew that Jesus would win in the end. Human history is the same story. It may not be baseball, but human history is the same story. There are perceived failures and defeats and trials and difficulties that we go through. And we're like, oh no, God, are you still on the throne? And in the end, Jesus wins. And when Jesus wins, we win. We win. And if we win, that means I have nothing to lose in my life. That's why we should live uncivilized. That's why we should live dangerous and excited and fulfilling lives. Why? Because even if I lose everything, I gain even more in following Jesus. So I want to close as we head into communion by reading a verse. In fact, I'm going to ask you if you would just close your eyes because I want you to Identify with something that Paul wrote about himself, which is true for you and I today. The worship team is going to come back up, and we'll we'll go back into a song. In fact, in a moment, there's there's four stations around the auditorium, and when when I f- conclude my prayer and the worship team goes back to a song, you are welcome at any moment to go to those tables. And what you'll find there is what we call communion or the Lord's table, and it's two things. In the physical realm, it's a cracker and juice, but symbolically it represents Jesus' body broken for us. And then the cup represents his blood that was shed for us, which is this beautiful reminder of the fact that because Jesus was willing to give his life on the cross, he took our sin and our failure and our brokenness and he paid for it in such a way that if we embrace him, we are freed and forgiven from that. And we can follow him in our lives. That is a profound moment in history that that happened for all of us. That Jesus provided a way for us to be reconciled back to God. But today, when we receive communion, I want you to do something else. I would like you to not only appreciate and celebrate the fact that God has provided forgiveness through Jesus, but I want you to as well identify with Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his life. In Galatians 2:20 Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, when Jesus died, my old life died with him. And Paul goes on to say, it's not me that lives anymore. It's him. The me that used to be me, that died. But the me that is supposed to be me is alive because Jesus is alive in me. And that life that I live now, I live by my belief and my trust and my following in Jesus who gave himself for me and saved my soul. So what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment when you get those elements is to be reminded that the life that Jesus lived not only purchased his death, he died, and then the rising from the dead, not only purchased your life to be reconciled back to God, but demonstrated the life that he calls you and I to live. That means you and I have to be willing to be willing to die in order to live. So Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, we want to say thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your suffering. Thank you for purchasing our our lives. But Lord, we know that you did all that for more than just a civilized, safe, comfortable faith. You gave everything for us because you want to do everything through us. That you want to help us to see that even living life in an uncomfortable fashion in an uncivilized way can bring joy to our souls. As we follow you, Lord, bring us to life, awaken our souls, open our eyes, help us to see there's so much more that you have for us that we would identify with you and no longer would we live, but we would live the life that you have for us because you live inside of us and you've transformed our souls. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Now, let us embrace that and live that out in your name.